circumstances might the provincial be cosmopolitan and what would it mean if it were? Sense of this conundrum can be made by exploring the idea that provincialism, at least in early and mid-19th century Britain, is a formation closely associated with print culture. The village tale, which comes to epitomise English provincialism, is also, I argue, a complex and significant response to global modernity and the kinds of mobility that it brought. The village tale was a new kind of topographical writing which launched on the literary scene in England during the 1820s. It consisted of loosely connected anecdotes and scenes set in rural or semi-rural locations, and it was made popular by the English writer Mary Russell Mitford. Mitford enjoyed huge success as the author of a long series of, series of village stories based on her own experiences as a resident of the village of Three Mile Cross, close to Reading in Berkshire. These were first published in the monthly Ladies' Magazine between 1822 and 24, and later in volume form under the title Our Village, and were widely anthologised in albums and annuals and reprinted around the world. From the time of their first publication and extending through the century, Mitford's, Mitford's village tales were also emulated by writers eager to repeat her commercial success. So widespread was this type of topographical literature in the 1820s and 30s that at times it seemed almost to saturate the market. Yet despite this popularity, its critical fortunes have always run low. In 1831, for instance, in his gallery of literary um, characters, a series of satirical portraits of prominent literary figures of the day published in Fraser's Town and Country magazine William McGinn, while admiring Mitford's commercial savvy, criticised her style for what he called its mannerism, its tedious prattle. The gendering of this critique is unambiguous. McGinn's article was accompanied by a portrait of Mitford by Daniel MacLeese, which is here, in which she's pictured festooned in flowers and ribbons, the church spires of her village in the distance, delivering copy for the thousands of annuals which she ornaments. Mimicking her style, he minces through a series of blandly appreciative adjectives. Mary's basket is arranged in so neat, so nice, so trim, so comely, or to say all in one word, so very English a manner, to end with a good joke about Mitford's inability to count, because one word turns out there to be five. In uh, so very English a manner. Anyway. I think it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Lovably silly, yet so very English. McGinn's, um, the Irishman's, amused and semi-admiring assessment of Mitford as a commercially driven writer of narrow significance, inward-looking, parochial, indeed provincial in outlook, has persisted, and even re recent critics have tended to misread or underestimate the significance of Mitford's works in their own time. As if from either sides of the historical looking glass, Franco Moretti in Grass, Maps and Trees designates the village tale as a nostalgic genre that deals with inert traditional communities, which peaks with Mitford in the 1820s before falling into complete irrelevance from there on. While Ian Duncan, in his important essay, The Provincial or Regional Novel, judges the greatest significance of Mitford's work to lie not in her own time, but rather three decades later as a precursor to the provincial novels of the 1850s. 
I've argued elsewhere against this assessment, primarily on the grounds that for all the emphasis on rural backwaters, especially within the reception of these tales, village tales nevertheless engage to a surprising degree with technological change, transport and transcontinental communications, and they dwelt on the new print media which provided the context in which they flourished. They also represented a world in which, for better or worse, people were mobile. Rather than being backward, inward or stagnant in outlook, I argue, these tales constitute a complex and significant response to global modernity and the kinds of mobility that it brought. So I've written elsewhere about the techniques that Mitford develops in her village tales and argued that one of the most influential was the presentation of an aura of face-to-face -face friendliness in the impersonal and geographically extendable context of the press. The press and publication are central to this story. They provide both the vehicle for the tale's transmission, but also the conditions for its distinctive affective regime, the kind of distant intimacy which I suggest is the prevailing quality of Mitford's world. In this paper, I explore some of the trajectories of this as her work travels overseas on the filaments of the press. She was published and read in continental Europe, India, Australia, the Cape and America. As the village tale goes global, it creates the terms in which it's imagined an international world of print and a kind of cosmopolitanism that's underpinned by commerce and friendly giving. In the last part of the paper, I'll discuss Mitford's late work, Recollections of a Literary Life, in which the village has been turned into a vision of global print culture. So Mitford's tales were especially popular in America, and she, an enthusiast for American writing, actively sought out connections with Americans. Her letters to and from an extensive network of American friends shows the way in which our village provides a set of terms and an imagined space through which they collectively conceived a transatlantic literary world. This is particularly evident in her correspondence with the Boston publisher James T. Fields, whom she met in 1847. And this is Fields in all his chubby glory <laughs> and a very fashionable beard. I think he might have come from Dalston. Um, <laughs> these letters allow us to see that Mitford's provincial idiom, as established in our village, is a mixture of commercial savvy and friendly affiliation, and its sense of distant intimacy not, one, not only styled a common landscape of literary expression and shared cultural inheritance, but also mediated business relationships between writer and publisher. So Fields was the junior partner in the Boston publishing company Tickner and Fields, which in the middle decades of the century played an important role in establishing a truly national book trade in America out of the provincially based and diffuse publish publishing activities that had grown up since the colonial period. It built up its business through developing national networks of sales and distribution and by promoting its books through advertising and reviews established a remarkable list of American writers, notably, notably Longfellow, Whittier, um, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. and Nathaniel Hawthorne. But alongside these, it also published the work of some of the most prominent and profitable British authors of the day, Browning, Tennyson, and best-selling novelists Charles Reed, Elizabeth Gaskell, and Charles Kingsley, and in the 1860s, Charles Dickens, and it reprinted works from previous decades, uh, previous decades, notably by Scott and Thomas de Quincey. In the absence of an international copyright agreement, according to Michael Winship, American publishers played by what was referred to as 
quote, the courtesy of the trade, a set of unwritten agreements which provided some regulation of their dealings with British writers. For Tickner and Fields, this was a business opportunity. They were able to secure the works of British writers by offering advantageous financial terms, in some cases the same as American authors. By ensuring as near as possible simultaneous American publication with their British counterparts, they aim, aim to make it less likely, although not impossible, that the works would be reprinted by other American publishers. All this was done not through legally binding contracts, but through friendly sociability and informal agreements, underpinned by strong personal attachments. Much of Tickner and Fields' day-to-day -day British business was conducted by a London agent, the German émigré and Orientalist scholar Nicholas Trubner. Yet both Tickner and Fields also maintained personal contact and sustained genial relations with many of their British authors. Fields developed a network of literary friends during a number of European tours, and he maintained these through exchange of gifts and correspondence and mutual literary patronage. Tickner and Fields managed the hazardous world of transatlantic publishing through what we might think of as a kind of village sociability. As with our village, they mixed affability with commercial savvy. The distant intimacy that was the keynote of Mitford's provincial writing was the modus operandi of their publishing transactions, so that when Fields eventually met Mitford, they found themselves extremely well matched. Both were individuals who liked to mix business with personal friendships. The two were introduced by the poet John Kenyon, a mutual friend whom Fields had cultivated earlier on his tour. Um, Fields records, quote, a delightful interview with the author of Our Village. They appear to have struck up an immediate rapport, beginning an association that endured through correspondence until Mitford's death in 1854. I never took to anybody upon so short an acquaintance in my life, recalled Mitford, and his exceeding kindness and attention to me have completely justified the feeling. At this stage, Fields' kindness um, consisted of a stream of gifts, including books, food and portraits, introduction to various literary fi figures in Fields' network, and a, various, a, a very warm and flattering correspondence. Later, Fields would help her with her um, the American publication of her works, including Tickner and Fields' editions of Our Village in 1853, so three de decades later, and her novel Atherton in 1854. There was a high degree of reciprocity between them. In return for his kindness, um, Mitford shared with um, Fields gifts, including this one, which I have to show because I think it's gloriously and morbidly Victorian. It's some of her hair that she... Um, sent to um, his wife when, on their marriage. I just think, what a hideous, gruesome <laughs> present to get when you're just about to get married. <laughs> Hair. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, apart from that, um, she shared with him um, her own extensive literary network, gave in him introductions by letter, if not in person, to writers that became extremely lucrative to him, including Charles Kingsley and Thomas de Quincey, and supplied a set of personal letters that he would publish as part of his own literary memoirs, um, which was called Yesterday with Authors and published in the 1870s. So their friendship had a direct impact on Mitford's work, and in 1852, in part inspired by the new circles to which Fields had given her access, she published her Recollections of a Literary Life, 
a vast assemblage of anecdotes and extracts from works by authors living and dead, including American writers. This work self-consciously drew on the style and structure of our village, only now the village was a world made up of printed works rather than a lived environment, and the terrain expanded to incorporate the whole literary world. In its 42 chapters on writers living and dead, including five chapters on American authors, <coughs> four of which dealt with Tickner and Fields authors, Longfellow, uh, Whittier, Holmes and Hawthorne, and served um, actually as quite effective publishing, uh, pub pub publicity for an advertising for Tickner and Fields. Um, recollections maps a mid-century, mainly Anglophone, but nevertheless cosmopolitan literary world. Perhaps unsurprisingly, but curiously, it is modelled on our village. Like in our village, the chapters are infused with personal reminiscences and relayed through her familiar and friendly narrative voice. Rather than English country life, um, however, the subject matter of recollections is literature and the culture that surrounds it. Anecdotes about authors, their homes and gardens, wives and families, lives and careers discussions of plays, poems and novels, and most important of all, extensive extracts from literary works. In that it brings together and reprints the work of different writers, the recollections is something like the annuals and albums that were popular in the 1820s and 30s. Yet in its narrative style it shares much with our village, the same ethos of friendly sociability and domestic harmony. A chapter on Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert Browning entitled Married Poets begins, married poets, charming words are these, <laughs> significant of congenial gifts, congenial labour, congenial tastes, and it goes on in that vein for quite a long time. <laughs> and it contains a similar range of characters and types, except that now, rather than village, village personalities, all the characters are authors. For instance, peasant poets, such as John Clare, fashionable poets, I won't read out the names because it goes on too long, comic poets, cavalier poets, authors sprung from the people, that's Holcroft, um, <laughs> Irish poets. Uh, there are three chapters on female poets. And as in our village, there's also an emphasis on place. No less than eight chapters entitled Authors Associated with Places which range from Geoffrey Chaucer to her friends, the poets W.C. Bennett and John Kenyon, and it includes country and city locations. It included the literature of European languages and European places too. There's a chapter on Spanish ballads, and it, it also includes French and Italian writers along the way as well. So all the elements of our village here are adapted to this new work, as though literature as a whole could be perused through the prism of one large fictive village. The differences um, between these two works revolve around shifts in emphasis rather than change style or subject matter. While our village was shaped by its production um, for the market in print, specifically magazines, Recollections takes its very subject matter from print as though print had taken over and usurped the whole living world. And while our village described a village which was connected to the wider world by commercial and communication networks, Recollections broadens its vision to those dispersed places that the networks made reachable. There's a shift in technique from the on-the-spot sketch which Mitford stressed in our village to the panorama, the moving view that surveys all around it. The effect of this is to expand the range of view. Take, for example, the essay on Samuel Johnson, more than half of the essay is taken up by autobiographical preamble, which takes us on a panoramic tour, 
from Mitford's childhood memories of a servant's country wedding to her first visit as a child to the tourist sites of London, St Paul's Cathedral, the Tower of London, Astley's Amphias Theatre and so on, and thence imaginatively to India via the textiles that she saw on display at the Great Exhibition some years later in 1851. Those Indian draperies, she writes, are poems which have no need of word, forms invented thousands of years ago and repeated from dynasty to dynasty, from empire to empire. It is that those ancient nations of the eastern, or is it that those ancient nations of the eastern south have in them the great principle of permanence, which is a sort of earthly immortality, so it's a little kind of flight of fancy in the middle of that essay. But Mitford's gaze is now total, from the ancient nations of East and South to modern-day London, everything is accommodated within this world view. This is a world of texts, even the textiles are poems with no need of words. When Samuel Johnson is finally introduced to the essay, it's on the grounds that the London Mitford visited as a child some 60 years ago was not materially different from that in which he had lived and reigned. That's to say, an environment of books and papers, words, dictionaries, and peopled by writers and publishers, printers and booksellers. There is continuity, immortality even, and it is all provided by the press. The world defined in the recollections is a world of print. Now, Mitford's Recollections was immediately popular, not only in Britain. It was issued in London by Bentley, in Paris by Galliani, and in New York by Harper's in 1852, with second editions quickly following. Just three months from publication in London, Mitford tells Fields, it has found far more favour than I expected. Ever since the week after its publication, I have received a dozen of letters daily about it from friends and strangers, mostly strangers, some of very high accomplishments who will certainly become friends. <laughs> she even receives visitors on account of it. One of my yesterday's visitors, she wrote to Fields, was a glorious old lady of 76 who has lived in Paris for the last 30 years, and I do believe she came to England um, very much for the purpose of seeing me. You may imagine how much she must have been struck with my book when it met her eye in Paris. And she adds, we had certainly never met. In the way um, imagined in our village then, recollections creates intimacy among strangers, increasing Mitford's celebrity and developing her network of friends still further. Now, this mixture of affectionate giving comes to a climax in the production of a lavish extra illustrated edition of the Recollections, which is now held in the Huntington Library in California. From the middle of the 18th century, extra illustration had been elite practice amongst book collectors, whereby illustrations were artfully inserted into otherwise unillustrated printed books, transforming print commodities into individualised works of art. It was a practice that appealed to connoisseurs and collectors as it was a way of both personalising and dramatically increasing the value of a printed book and of displaying a collection of often rare items. In mid-1852, Mitford was approached by a London print dealer, Holloway, who had been commissioned by a city businessman and collector of prints called Dylan to produce such an object as a gift for his wife. The text of Recollections had plenty of opportunities for extra illustration, especially with portraits and landscapes, and its emphasis on domestic happiness and genial sociability made it the perfect offering from husband to wife. The resulting edition was in six folio volumes, bounding blue Morocco. The pages of the printed book were extracted, mounted, and interleaved with engravings, specially commissioned watercolours by Thomas Dibden, um, this is one of them, that's her, her house that she writes from all the time, 
um, autographs. Um, here's um, Robert Browning. So this is sort of typical of the kind of thing that is there. In total, there are 479 um, items um, enfolded in, into this very beautiful item, uh, object, actually. Um, the the uh, chapter on Samuel Johnston, for instance, included engravings um, the, of the interiors and exteriors of London theatres. So you can get the, the way in which it works. So there's the page of the book with the illustrations um, in interleaved opposite. Um, uh, there, um, um, then there's uh, illustrations of Crystal Palace as well as playbills, copious portraits of Johnson and so on and so forth. Mitford assisted in preparation of the book and called on her friends, including Fields, to supply autographs and engravings. The chapters of American writers were thus considerably supplemented by material procured um, by Fields. This is typical, that's Longfellow's house. It was extraordinarily fine and sumptuous production, and it turned a commonly available print commodity into a private collection of artworks and memorabilia, a token of marital affection, and an object of considerable monetary value. Um, am I doing okay for time? Okay, I don't need that long, actually. Okay. I'll slow down now, then, so I won't. <laughs> For Mitford, the monetary value of the items that were interleaved conferred prestige on her work. She was also conscious of the aristocratic associations of extra illustration as a favoured pursuit of gentlemen bibliophiles from the previous century. By this time, however, extra illustration had become popular in the more plebeian and female form of scrapbooking, which the domestic emphases of recollections would have, um, uh, would have suggested. Despite its lavishness, the quality of the insertions and the refinement of the craftsmanship which produced it, there was something homely and provincial about the book, a gift from a man to his wife, which opens with an engraving of Mitford and three small watercolours colours of her cottage home, which the first one I showed was one of those that emphasise their modesty and the village locations which she was writing from. Also inserted in the opening uh, page is the, um, this, oh, this is one of the portraits at the beginning, this is Mitford as a child. Uh, this is a very, very bizarre thing actually, but anyway, there it is. <laughs> and then there are followed lots of other sort of more artistic pictures of babies, all very chubby ones actually. <laughs> um, and then... Um, this, this is the letter that, that is inserted, a letter that Mitford wrote to Dylan, um, which is so an, an autographed letter by her to him that is there at the, um, the opening of the um, volumes, thanking him graciously in the spirit of friendship for the honour you have conferred upon my book, doubly so as coming from one whose refined taste for art is but an adjunct of far higher qualities. Um, and those being an appreciation of literature and books. And this expression of friendship is familiar from our village, a connection between strangers by a shared love of books. So this opulent edition of Recollections seems to epitomise the provincial in 1853. The book itself is a print commodity, a collection of literary anecdotes and extracts from around the world. It maps a shared terrain of, um, a, a terrain of shared cultural inheritance across continents and styles this as a village and a cottage home. As an extra illustrated book, it's the product of collaboration, a mixture of services professionally rendered, works of art acquired through monetary exchange, and of friendly donations made by strangers, autographs freely given by international contacts. So the kind of internationalism of this is quite an important feature of it. Um, 
And I, it wouldn't have come about if it hadn't been for her connections with Fields in the first place, for various reasons. It's an expression of intimate affection made possible by the interventions of strangers and the finances of the city, and at the same time, a mark of cultural prestige bestowed on Mitford's work by Dylan through his outlay of capital. So I present this as a version of cosmopolitanism that has some traction in the middle decades of the century. It's like the capitalist cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism about which Marx complains is an ideological displacement of the truly universal consciousness of the pro proletariat. Yet its emphasis on gifts and friendship, in addition to commercial networks, opens a more positive effective realm on which the vampiric figures of cosmopolitanism that Marx depicts forecloses. Most importantly, it opens up a way of rethinking provincialism, especially in relation to um, the provincial English novel of the middle decades of the century, which I think has, not, has, a, has a different relationship to new kinds of globalism than is usually assumed. So not cosmopolitanism in any way that I think we would readily recognise, I think, but definitely a culturally significant expression of global belonging that has, uh, for a long time, I think, been sidelined.